Ephesians chapter 5. Now the theme of the book, do you remember what it was? Who can remember? We've gone through this a lot of times. Look at I'm calling on you and nobody's answering. This isn't a good sign. The theme of the book of Ephesians. Yes, somebody said it. The wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. Those three words sum up the entire book. Paul outlines in chapters 1, 2, and 3 who you are and what you have in Christ. That's the wealth of the believer. Beginning in chapter 4 and into chapter 5 and even to the very beginning of chapter 6, he speaks of the walk. How you ought to live based upon who you are and what you have. Then, chapter 6, by and large, is because of what you have, who you are, and how you walk, you're going to be a target of the devil. He's going to be after you. So you need to learn how to fight. And that's the warfare of the believer. Tonight, chapter 5 speaks about walking in love. Walking in love. And we're going to look at the first uh, five verses, seven verses really, but five uh, principally. Walking in love, it fits what we're about to do in taking the Lord's Supper. Because you know what Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus laid down his life and in doing such, he exemplified, it was the greatest demonstration of love. In fact, that is Paul's definitive example, definitive demonstration of love, not only here in chapter 5, but so often in his letters. F.M. Lehman wrote a hymn years ago, The love of God is greater far than ink or pen could ever tell. It stretches to the farthest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And that describes some of your life, lives, before you came to Jesus Christ. He reached down, and in his love and in his mercy, he saved you. Let's look at the first several verses, and then we'll go back over them. Therefore, be followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. No subject has stimulated more songs than the subject of love. Every year, hundreds of songs are written that express somebody's love for girlfriend, boyfriend, parents, children, God, 
the world, all you need is love, etc. But as noble as that is, I think you would be forced to agree that this world is very confused when it comes to the meaning of love. We use the term, we overuse the term. I love sports. I love Chinese food. I love God. Now that's the same word you use to describe all three of those things that you have an affection for. But I hope you don't love God as you love Chinese food. It's a little too salty. I don't like it anymore. There are different levels of it, but the world's definition is confusing. As the world so often defines love, it is an emotional feeling. It is an expression based upon the now. Or it is something that defines lust rather than true love. The biblical definition is far from that. The biblical definition involves sacrifice. It's unconditional. It's forgiving. All the things that we read about here. It's more than just an emotional thing. The world craves true love. Josh McDowell, in one of his books, said, Two things everyone wants more than anything else. You know, one thing is love. And he said, there's two great fears that people have. Number one, they fear that they'll never be truly unconditionally loved. And number two, they fear they'll never able, be able to give unconditional love to somebody else. And that stifles, he said, lots of relationships. And what people will uh, substitute for love and call love isn't love at all. What they really want is intimacy, but we've substituted the sexual revolution because we crave intimacy. McDowell said that he was speaking one time at a university about this very subject, and he mentioned that the two great fears people have is the fear that they'll never be loved for who they are unconditionally, and number two, they'll never be able to give unconditional love to another person. That struck a chord in one young lady who heard that message. She was able to get a hold of Josh McDowell the next morning over the phone. She said, I heard your lecture yesterday. I heard what you had to say. She said, Mr. McDowell, for the last five nights I have slept with five different men. I woke up this morning after hearing your message. Yesterday, I woke up this morning and I said, surely there has to be more than this. McDowell said, young lady, there is more than this. It's called intimacy. And you have, you have substituted sexual activity, calling it love, and what you really want is intimacy, which is different than just sexual activity. You want to be unconditionally loved. The girl on the other end was weeping, he said. Now, Paul uses... As you remember from chapter 4, the word walk more than anybody else in the New Testament. And just a brief uh, outline in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Then in verse 17, This I say therefore and testify... In the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the emptiness or in the futility of their mind. Look over at chapter 5, verse 8. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly or with wisdom, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. But we go back now to chapter 5, the first few verses, where he focuses in on walking in love. Now it's interesting that Paul expands on what it is to walk in love with other people to the Ephesian church. He expands on that to the church at Ephesus. I say it's interesting because the bishop of Ephesus, after Timothy was there for a while, was John the Apostle. And you probably remember some of the letters of John, principally 1 John, where he speaks so much about what it is to experience God's love and give God's love to other people. And if you love God, you'll love God's children. John's overarching message to the church at Ephesus as their bishop, as their pastor, was that they should love one another. Paul expands on it here, but John will live it before them as their elder, as their pastor. Now there is a story that says when John the Apostle was very aged, he was so old that he couldn't walk, that people from the church at Ephesus had to come to his home, carry him on a cot, and bring him into the assembly. They brought him into the assembly, and they asked for some message from the Lord, some word of wisdom from this venerable, sagacious, aged apostle. And in his latter years, it was said that John had the same message every time he appeared. It was very short. It was very simple. His words as he raised his feeble hands were, My little children love one another. That was the end of the message. It got to be a little old. He was getting old. And it got to be even older because he would share the same thing. Little children love one another. And so one of the other elders at the church of Ephesus, after one of these episodes, said, John, why do you always speak thus? And John said, little children, because it is the Lord's command, and if you do this only, it is enough. If you do this only, it is enough. He was honing in on the the words of Jesus. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. So Paul now expands to this very same church the idea of loving, walking in love and loving one another. What it is to walk in love? Three things. We walk in love... By imitating our Father. That's verse 1. We walk in love by emulating our Savior. That's verse 2. And we walk in love by influencing our brother and sister. That's the rest of the verses. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. The nature of God is the nature of love. John, in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, said, Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
defining part of the very nature of God, the very essence of God, as one of love. And since that is the very nature of God, God makes the first move. He's the great initiator. We love him, Paul wrote in another letter, because he first loved us. Well, since God is the great initiator, we should be the great imitators. And it says, be followers, or literally, as more of the modern translations put it, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, you see that word, imitators? Does your translation say that tonight? This is a New King James, but it's one of the first editions, so it says followers, and it's not as clear as your translation, be imitators. That's more of a literal translation, to imitate God. The word in Greek, I'm sort of being like your dad now, except I'm not Greek, but the word in Greek for imitators, followers, mimetes. Mimetes, we get our word mimic from. Mimic God. Remember when your children, if you have children, were at that stage where they would just like copy everything you do on purpose to see how long they could do it. So if at the dinner table you picked up your fork, they would go. And if you grab something, they would grab the same thing. And if you move, they would move. Be imitators of God. Be mimickers of God or followers of God as dear children. It's been said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And, and how wonderful it is to say, Lord, I don't even like this person. I don't get along with this person. Their personality is so different from mine, I would not hang out with them naturally. But because you're my father and you love that person, I will then go out of my way to demonstrate some way, say some word, some demonstration, some action that would be like you, that would mimic you because you loved us. And that is, I think, the idea of mimicking God or being imitators of God as dear children. You know, all the way through the scripture, this principle of imitation is seen. Even in the Old Testament, God said, be holy because what? I am holy. That's the foundation upon which that action rests. The foundation is this is God's nature. If you're connected to God, you're his child. He's your father. Then do what he does. Show a family resemblance. That's sort of connected to this thought in chapter 4. Look at the verse 32 of chapter 4. And be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So then, we walk in love by imitating our Father, showing a family resemblance. So wouldn't it be great if people that know you well and hung out with you a lot, live with you at the home, say, you know, you remind me of God. You remind me of Jesus. Alexander the Great discovered a man in his army whose name was Alexander, like himself. What disturbed him is that this soldier was a coward. And when Alexander found out that there was a coward in his army named Alexander, he approached him personally. He said, young man, you either renounce your cowardness 
or renounce your name. For I will have no one in my army named after me that is a coward. We are called Christian, followers of Christ, imitators of God, bearing hopefully a family resemblance. So that love certainly ought to be a part of that mix. In a large city, it was nearing winter, and a young boy was standing in front of a window, freezing, shivering, looking in a department store window, and an elderly lady walked by. She was pretty well-dressed and bundled up in a coat. And she noticed this little boy shivering, and she stopped. She said, little boy, what are you doing? The little boy looked up at the woman, and she said, he said, I'm praying for a, a new pair of shoes. I'm asking God if, if he'd get me a new pair of shoes. His shoes were busted open, and his feet were cold. She smiled, grabbed him by the hand, walked him inside the store. You can guess what's going to happen. She took off her gloves, asked for a little bucket of water and a towel. She washed his feet, bought him six pairs of shoes, six pairs of socks, put one pair on him, five pairs were in the bags, one in each hand. She patted him on the head and said, there, God has answered your prayer, and it was a privilege for me to be a part of it. And as she's about to walk away, the little boy tugged on her hand. She looked back to a tear-stained little boy's face, and the little boy looked up and said, hey, are you God's wife? (laughs) Isn't that cute? Are you God's wife? That action that you perform would remind me so much of God, you've got to be related to him. What a great way to live, isn't it? Hey, you must be God's kid. I can tell by the resemblance, you're an imitator of him. You bear his mark as you bear his name. Second, we walk in love not only by imitating our Father, but by emulating our Savior. For he says, and walk in love, verse 2, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. God the Father is the originator of love. We established that. That's his nature. God is love. But Jesus Christ is the example of that nature. He characterized it by the way he lived. That's why he could say, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When a little child learns how to draw, he usually takes... uh, a luminescent or a clear sheet of paper and puts it over an object and traces the object till he learns to draw on his own. But he first begins by finding a pattern and tracing the pattern. Then he gets good. He learns to draw. Jesus is our pattern, and we never grow out of him. We, we trace him. If, if you want to know about Christian living and Christian loving, you don't look at Christians as much as you look at the Christ of Christians. We emulate him. So here's God the Father. The nature of God is love. He's the originator of love. We love him because he first loved us. But here's the key. Jesus is the example. We trace our lives after him. You see, certain theological concepts are abstract. If the Bible simply said, God is love, you know, you could ponder that all day and come up with all sorts of different ways to look at that. 
But it's just a little too abstract. Jesus took the abstract concept and walked among us so that we could see exactly what that means. And that's the point of verse 2 when he says, He loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In other words, when you look at the cross, that is the example of love that we're to follow. Not that you should go home and die on a cross for your loved one or say, here, crucify me, go ahead. The point is that the cross of Jesus Christ shows us that God's love is unconditional. No strings attached. The love of God is sacrificial. He gives. And the love of God is forgiving. The love of God is first of all unconditional and that is seen at the cross. The world's view of love is a romantic expression or a romantic feeling based upon, listen carefully, the worthiness of the person or the object. The world's view of love is that I love because you're lovable. You somehow merit my feeling and expression of love to you. And when I'm around you, I get such ooey-gooey feelings that I'm going to give you an expression of that because you have merited it by your attractiveness or your worthiness. That's conditional love. Unconditional love is it's love based upon not the recipient but the giver. The giver of God. It's his nature to love regardless. That's unconditional love. When you fail to love God, God loves you. When you disobey God, God loves you. When you're faithless and fall, God loves you. That's unconditional love. And that is the kind of love that is seen at the cross. The world's love ebbs and flows. You know, I'm kind of sick of reality shows. On one hand, I'm glad they're on there so that the world can finally see this is truth. Uh, Love and all of those romantic marriage courtship shows love is about that deep maybe I'm giving them too much maybe it's about that deep the the love ebbs and flows making the recipient of love very insecure I remember even the Beatles sang a song when I get older losing my hair many years from now will you still need me will you still feed me when I'm 64 well If you love like Jesus, it's a non-issue. The answer would be, of course I'll love you when you're looking that bad. (laughs) When you're bald and wrinkled and even an invalid, I will love you till death do us part. But the world has to ask that question. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Honestly, the world's form of love would say, well... It depends. If you're the only one out there, yeah, but if something better comes along, well, we'll evaluate it then. That's conditional love. So Jesus, verse 2, didn't have emotional feelings for us. It wasn't just a, a love based upon an emotional concern. Romans 5 said he loved us when we were still sinners, and that's the point of the verse. And by the way, tonight we're celebrating the cross. Jesus loved us when you were a sinner and didn't deserve his love. And guess what? 
It's on the same basis tonight. It's on the same basis. His love is promised to you, demonstrated to you now, even in the midst of imperfection. Romans 8.32 sort of says that all. If he did not spare his only son, but gave him up freely for us, how will he not then with him freely give us all things? Now, let me just underscore something. Love, according to scripture, isn't the same as like. What the world calls love is emotional liking or lust, usually. Love is different. I don't think it's possible to like everybody, honestly. I've tried, and I don't like everybody. I'm just being honest. I don't think God always likes the way we are, do you? But he loves us regardless of what he doesn't like in us. So just keep that differentiation. Liking and loving aren't the same thing. You cannot like somebody or like what they do or, or how they act or what they say, but you can still choose to demonstrate love. And then verse 2 shows that love is not only unconditional, but it's sacrificial. He loved us and given himself for us. This separates the minor leagues from the big leagues when it comes to love. There was a magazine article from Life Magazine I saw. You might have seen it. I think it was last year or the year before called The Science of Love. And it wrote all about the chemical reaction that takes place in the mind when there comes to a bonding process with another person. And it was all about animal magnetism the excretion of your glands, your hormones. Nothing was said about this kind of sacrificial love based upon a choice. Nothing. But I've got to tell you, that separates the, the minor leagues from the big leagues is sacrifice. Sacrifice. I read a cute little letter from seven-year-old Linda Griggs. Linda Griggs was a six-year-old from, or seven-year-old, Six-year-old, and she wrote the letter seven years old today, probably, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She wrote a letter to Dr. Michael DeBakey. Do you remember who he was? He was the world-renowned Houston heart surgeon who developed the art, helped develop an artificial heart, um, uh, or made um, several uh, advances in that kind of surgery. She wrote a letter, and she said, Dr. DeBakey, is there any love in a plastic heart? It's a good question. The doctor wrote back and he said, oh yes, there's a great deal of love in a plastic heart. For the love in a plastic heart, continued the doctor, comes from people who love other people and don't want them to die. And so they'll work every day and sometimes into the night to build a heart to let other people live a long, long time. So he said, if you can imagine... All of the love in a hundred real hearts, that's how much love is in a plastic heart. How much love is in the heart of God. If while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If he freely gave him and will freely give us all things, how much love is in the heart of God. Well, his love is unconditional, it's sacrificial, and it is forgiving. I just want you to sneak back quickly. Once again, and look at verse 32 of chapter 4, because it's in the same context as chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave you. The greatest evidence, the greatest evidence of love will be forgiveness. It's unconditional, it's undeserved, it's sacrificial, but it's willing to forgive. And God forgives over and over and over again. The most convincing proof that we're attached to God, we've received his forgiveness, is that we can turn and say, you know, God forgave me a huge debt. I forgive you. You've asked for my forgiveness. Let's pray. Let's, let's embrace. Let's go as friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. That whoever would believe is based upon the character of God in his ability to forgive us. I want to read something to you before we close our time together and take communion. And that doesn't mean I'm going to close right after I read this, but we're, we're coming to a close. I'm sort of like Paul, you know, he says, finally, my brother, and then he'll go on for just a little longer. And it's that second or third finally. You go, oh, now he's done. This is about an inmate in a Texas prison who 20 years before had, had murdered a girl. Uh, his name was Ron Flowers, and this is about the reconciliation that occurred between that dead girl's mother 20 years later and this Texas prison inmate, Ron Flowers. This is out of a newspaper called The Forum. Quote, at a long and tearful face-to-face -face meeting, Flowers confessed to the crime for which he had long maintained innocence. And seeing the change that had taken place in his life, the murder victim's mother not only forgave him, but also made an astounding offer. She said, I have no one left. I am going to take you as my adopted son. I read that and thought, that's the heart of God. That's forgiveness. I've lost my daughter. You took her from me. I've lost everyone in my life. I have no one left, so I'm going to take you as my adopted son. Why could she say that? She saw a change in him, genuine, heartfelt sorrow, the need to be forgiven, and she extended forgiveness. And she can only do that in the name of Christ and in the love of God. Finally, to walk in love is to influence our brother. And uh, I would say brother, and we put under here on the screen, sister. I'm using brother generically, so they help correct me. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God the Father is the originator of love. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the example of love. And selfishness bottlenecks love. Now there's a list here, and you might wonder, Paul... How does your little list in verse 3 even relate 
or segue with what you just wrote about in verses 1 and 2. Simply because this list shows the epitome of selfish living, not selfless, unconditional, forgiving, sacrificial love. And so what he does, he takes it from the realm of God and Jesus and puts it down on the human, Gentile, sinful level and shows these are the list of sins that are very common in the world. And to live in them is to live for self, and it's the very antithesis of the love of God. And so he articulates briefly sins of passion and sins of speech. Sins of passion are but fornication. By the way, that word means it's porneia. Porneia is a a general umbrella term for sexual immorality, be it fornication, single people, adultery for married people, homosexuality. uh, Any of those kind of sins would be under the umbrella of porneia. It's it's not love, it's lust. It's one set of glands calling out to another set of glands. It has nothing to do with love or sacrifice or forgiveness. It's just... I need, I want now. That's the whole idea of it. But fornication and all uncleanness, that's a general term for the thought life, the fantasy life, or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Covetousness is next on the list because to covet, to want something you don't have, is a focus on self. Then in verse 4, he focuses on sins of speech, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. When you come to Christ, a lot of things change. And let me just tell you one thing that ought to change is how you talk, your speech. And he articulates several things. When he says, Foolish talking, it's the second on the list in verse 4. Coarse jesting, sort of the same thing. Uh, Foolish, uh, excuse me, yeah, the word foolish talking, it's the only time the New Testament uses the word moros. It comes from the word moron. Isn't that interesting? You notice, I notice something about people that aren't very bright. Because they really can't articulate anything of value, they have to relate to the worst kind of four-letter words as fill words. Think Ozzy Osbourne. No real intelligence there, just all sorts of expletives strung next to each other as meaningless fill words. Moros. It's the idea behind this word, foolish talking. Coarse jesting, which are not fitting. When you go to the doctor, sometimes the doctor says, open your mouth, stick out your tongue. You might be thinking, why? Because your tongue reveals a lot about other things that are going on inside of you. It could be symptomatic of something, and he can tell by a look or by the texture, by the color. And in in like manner, Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say reveals who you are, whether it's foolish talking or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, or, and here's the but rather, the giving of thanks. You see, whenever you give thanks to God or to people, 
It's a selfless expression, not a selfish expression. You are turning the focus off yourself and you are giving honor to them. You are thanking them. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Walk in love. You've heard it before. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you, you hear messages like this so often that you might be tempted to say, as the Ephesians did to aged John, why do you always say thus? Skip, I've heard this message before. Love, love, love. Why do you always speak thus? Because it is the Lord's command. And if this you do alone, it is enough. On that will string all of those other virtues, benefits, fruit of the Spirit. Heard a great story, read a great story. It was an Omni magazine. I think his name was Ronald Coleman. He wrote the story. He wrote the story about driving to work one day. A woman was driving what looked like a brand new car next to him, and she was trying to pass him. She got her car too close to his car, snagged the fender, dinged her car. They both pulled over on the side of the road, and this lady got out just weeping. She was weeping because, though it was her fault, it was a brand new car. Brand new car. And she said to the other driver, Ronald Coleman, my husband's going to kill me. That's a brand new car. She went on and on about what will her husband say? What will her husband think? And Coleman understood her problem, but he said, you know, nonetheless, we have to exchange insurance papers and phone numbers and all that stuff, driver's license stuff, so we can send it in for a claim. So she reached into the glove compartment, and the first piece of paper that tumbled out was a note written in, in very masculine scrawl that said, in case of accident, remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. <laughs> this husband knew his wife. <laughs> knew her driving habits and knew how she would react. And with a heart of sacrificial, unconditional, and forgiving love, what a gesture to write. In case of accident, remember, honey, it's you I love and not that car. When Jesus put out his hands on Calvary's cross and died for your sins and mine, it was as if God was holding out a note to humanity, saying, it's you I love. It's not trees and forests and oceans and bears and spotted owls and anything in creation. It's you I love. Because Jesus died for none of that. He died only for you and for your sins. So to walk in love, we have to imitate our Father. To walk in love, we emulate our Savior. How? By unconditional love, sacrificial love, forgiving love. And we influence our brother by refraining from these sins of passion and sins of speech that focus on self. And rather, we turn our heart toward a giving of thanks to God and to them.